name's Dr. Simon Hendel, and uh, I'm very fortunate this morning to be joined by Air Vice Marshal Dr. Tracy Smart, who is the Commander of Joint Health Command and the Surgeon General of the ADF. She has spent 33 years in the Royal Australian Air Force as a medical officer and has deployed in support of a range of international operations, including in support of UN peacekeeping operations to Rwanda and to the Middle East. She is a specialist in aviation medicine and was the investigating officer of a fatal F-111 crash in 1999, for which she was awarded the Chief of Air Force Commendation. Air Vice Marshal Smart joins me in Adelaide, where she has just delivered the Kester Brown Lecture at the Australian Society of Anaesthetists National Scientific Congress. She spoke about leading cultural change, and it's about that that I look forward to speaking with her today. Tracy, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tracy, you've spent almost your whole career as a doctor in the ADF and have achieved the highest possible position for a medical officer. Uh, how have you seen the culture of defence change over the past three decades or so? Well, it um, certainly has changed, that's for sure. I mean, I joined in uh, 1985 when I was a uh, medical student at Flinders Uni down the road here. And, um, you know, I think it's only when you look back you realise how much things have changed I think what's particularly changed is the number of women in the ADF. So we're now at about 20% female participation. Doesn't sound, you know, a lot, but um, when I joined, it was probably only around 12, 10, 12%. Um, and I think we're also seeing, um, you know, women in high leadership positions now. I'm only the third uh, woman in the in the air force who's reached this particular rank. So that's pretty amazing when you consider the long length of time that it, uh, the air force has been around. So that's changed a lot, and people's attitudes have changed. And I think uh, you know we've we have to change. We've had to change over the years as society has changed, because uh, we ha we have to I guess keep not enticing is not quite the word, but keep sort of getting people to join us keep people looking at ADF and going, that represents me, and that is something that I want to join. And Australia, as we know, is more than 50% women. Mm. It's very multicultural. Um, it has people from all different, you know, every country of the world just about, different cultural backgrounds, different, you know, uh, sort, of, uh, sort of sex and gender type things. So it really is, um, it needs to move with the times and start reflecting what Australia is. And I think in the last few years there's been really deliberate efforts to to change and to make us a more inclusive environment. And, and do you think that those efforts have been driven from the members of defence or driven from external societal pressures? I think it's been a bit of both. Um, as I was talking about this morning, it, the, the real catalyst came from what was a relatively, if you look in the whole scope of history, a small event, a big event for the individuals involved, but a relatively small event that occurred in our um, ADF, ADF Academy, or ADFA. And, you know, it involved a, a sex scandal that probably happens at a lot of universities. And I think, um, you know, that, that small event, though, had a, a real cataclysmic change. Initially... It was driven, I think, by headlines and by reputation and by, you know, politics. But I think the consequence of it have, um, and the reason why it's taken hold, is because, because it's been embraced from our senior leaders on down. And the way they became convinced, I think, is, is more than anything else, because they sat down with people who had been treated badly in the past. Yeah. And there's nothing like hearing that lived experience to understand something. 
I think even for us women, you know, I can look back and I've there have been times when I've had you know, inappropriate things said to me in the bar, but I came into the military as a doctor, so I was a bit empowered. And when you come in empowered, you don't realise what it's like for those who are not as empowered. And um, so there's a lot of stuff going on that you don't see, but when you sit down with some people, particularly of a junior rank, who, you know, look upwards and all they're seeing are men, when something happens to them, they don't feel there's anywhere... In the past, they haven't felt like there's anywhere to go. Now, that's really powerful. That wakes you up and that makes you realise we have to change to make sure that, you know, if, if someone is being poorly treated or, you know, is having problems, we need to be there as an organisation to support them. Yeah. And so, I mean, a, a recurring theme both in, in what you've just said but also in what you said in your lecture or, or address this morning um, was about leadership and, and the need to walk the walk for leaders when culture needs to change. What do you think that actually means? What does walking the walk for a leader at any level mean? Yeah, look, I, I think it's a, it's about... A lot of it comes down to authenticity. So people can see through you when you're just sprouting the party line. And I think that was a little bit what Pathway to Change, which is our thing, our, um, you know, the, the program that developed out of this scandal and, and set us on the change pathway. It was a really good initiative and it brought some really good things... But I think in the early days there was a bit of scepticism. Oh, another review, another thing we have to do, we have to do... And, and it kind of made it a little bit robotic, you know. It's almost like, yeah, just tick the box and move on. But when the leadership comes in and goes, no, we're going to need to look after our people and our people are being damaged. And you can hear in their voices, I remember Chief of Air Force at the time, talking about how he'd sat down with a young woman and who had wanted to be a pilot and her experiences and he just almost went white and you could see the emotion he had and he just said we can't let this happen and that that authenticity makes you go all right this is not just a uh, an exercise in the latest you know quality management thing or whatever else this is real this is about looking after our people but it's also about the um, you know, making sure the organisation is as good as it can be as well. Mm. And, of course, that's the wider organisation of defence or, or individual services of Army, Navy or Air Force. You, your role within the organisation has obviously been predominantly focused on the healthcare uh, of members in the organisation and, and the governance and structure of the healthcare organisation itself. What role do you think the, that healthcare or health providers within defence have had in improving or at least contributing to cultural change in defence? Yeah, I think our role has been obviously to be part of that change in general, but also, you know, if it's to have your radar out because there's a lot of, as we know, when patients come to see you, they don't always tell you everything. They don't always tell you the truth. And it may be that there's something else they want to say but they can't say. And I think in terms of particularly the treatment of women, and, and not just women, but, but other people as well, trying to um, have a knowledge of what their environment they work in is and finding a way to give them permission to tell you, even if they're not prepared to tell their supervisor, what your problems are. So I think it's that, that broader counselling role that health people might have, one-on-one -on -one with individuals as well, giving them permission to talk about their stories and encouraging them and supporting them to actually put in a complaint that can be investigated in a more 
um, non-health sort of way, you know, by the investigative services, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's one part. I think it's also the other contribution we can make is with our policies, making sure they're non-discriminatory, making sure that they are yeah, evidence-based, and in our case, they're also about risk. So, in other words, when um, when we when we see someone uh, and, and they have, have a health condition, what what our role is in defence is to decide. Is this health condition going to put them at risk, either in their, when they're employed in the garrison back home in Australia or when they're deployed overseas? Yep. So, um, so part of what we do is say, if, if they have a health condition, and uh, even if it's, um, you know, it's caused by another uh, factor or if it's related to things like pregnancy or if it's related to HIV, it's not about looking at the disease itself, it's looking at how that person with that illness, what is the risk and can they deploy still in that risk, if that makes sense. I'm not sure that I quite got that across. Sure, so I, I guess you're sort of saying that in terms of the, the, the role of health is to both look after the person that's in front of them but also the organisation that has to do uh, the job yes. it has to do. Yeah. But in the same way, figure out a way to make sure that that individual is feeling valued and 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 listened to as they and, and finding as many ways to get them to do their job. Absolutely, and and I think and it's also building that trust too. And it's a fine line sometimes to walk down when you've got two customers. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got command and you've got the member. And part of the uh, problem, I think, that when we first set up this entity called Joint Health Command, is that um, uh, the you know we discovered that patients thought we were telling command everything and command thought we were telling them nothing. So we probably got it about right. <laughs> but it wasn't good because we didn't have trust from either side. Sure. So we have to walk that fine line to say to the patient in front of us, you are important to us, your privacy is important to us, we won't tell anything to your command about your health condition unless you give your consent. Why might we want your consent to tell your command? Well, because then they know how to look after you and make sure you don't do anything that will make you more broken or, you know, exacerbate your health condition. So we will, we will get your consent, but it will be informed consent and you will have control over your information. Example might be someone who has PTSD. And the cause of their PTSD is, um, is sexual assault when they were younger. If you're comfortable, we would like to tell your CO that you have PTSD because there are certain things, treatment, other things, you might not be deployable. It makes sense for them to know because they have some responsibility for ensuring that you don't, don't become worse and that you're supported. But we don't need to tell them about the cause of your PTSD. Mm. So you can control how much we give. And that starts to then build trust. And we actually did, we both changed our policy to make people think about consent at every health interaction. So in other words, would the command need to know what this person's health condition is or do they just need to know what the impacts are and how much is the patient comfortable with us telling? Um, and we also then, I personally went out in that particular case to every all of our major health centres and did a, a roadshow on why trust, how we build trust why privacy is important, how informed consent is really important as well. Yeah. So 
I, I guess one of the things you've highlighted really nicely there is the kind of the fine line that I guess um, healthcare in defence has to tread because they have both a responsibility to the patient who's the member in front of them, but also to the command and the overall organisation so that it can make sure it's doing its job. If I could try and bring some parallels to the medical profession more broadly, mm -hmm. or perhaps civilian medical, the civilian medical workforce, which is obviously different. It has some key differences in that where there's one defence, there isn't really one medicine. You know, yes. There's lots and lots of individual practitioners working for a big organisation as a, as a broad team, but they don't have the same kind of uniformity that uh, defence members have. What, what sort of lessons do you think can be um, translated to, from the lessons you've learned in terms of cultural change in defence to the medical profession more broadly? Be, because as you know and as the, as the media has broadly publicised, there, there have been plenty of cultural challenges for um, the medical profession as well in, in, in various areas. Yeah, no, look, I think, I think some of the stuff we've, we've done in terms of, yes, we, we are one military, but there are different tribes within that military. So, yes, there is one Joint Health Command, but there's also Army Health, Navy Health and, um, and Air Force Health as well. So what we've tried to, I guess, do is create a narrative that joins up a whole health system and really joins up a system that wraps around all of our members from the day they come in to the day they leave. And during that time, they will interact with all parts of defence and all parts of health, to, but we're all on that same team to do that job. And I think maybe then if you take that down to a lower level, maybe it's not possible to do it across the whole health system, particularly in a country like Australia where you've got jurisdictional you know, boundaries and everything else. But you could look at it in terms of the patient journey through their health care, uh, in, in terms of, and even you know through life, um, but even a particular incident or a particular um, episode of care, um, you know. For, so there, there's heaps of people that touch them along that path, the GP and everything else. So looking at how you can wrap around a, uh, a piece around that to, to sort of get all the stakeholders in place, including the person in the middle there, and saying, what does this look like as a holistic piece instead of GP, right referral, you know, surgency, et cetera, et cetera, on that path. So I think you, you can look at how you can... Um, and there's a lot of work I know that's going on about the patient journey, and I think... Look, I, I'm not sure, but I think it's probably... A lot of that's coming from the nursing fraternity rather than the medical fraternity. Maybe it's time for the medical fraternity to start looking at that. And I think there's an important part. If you, if you look at it in terms of the hospital situation, I think that the anaesthetists play a really important part in that as well, yeah. you know, in, in the glue of that whole journey as opposed to giving an anaesthetic. Yeah. Um, that would be my view. And, and certainly that's the evolution of perioperative medical practice, um, which is, of course, not only anaesthetists, yeah. but... But certainly, that's the the flavour of perioperative medicine is the is the um, focus on the entire patient's perioperative experience. With that in mind, I guess you you are coming closer to the end of your tenure as, as Surgeon General ADF, and and also probably to the the, the conclusion of your military career, and, and are able to look back on a, a long career. What with with the the cultural challenges and operational challenges you've dealt with over your career. Looking ahead, what do you think are the kind of big challenges for, I guess, 
both health in defence but, but medicine in general, mm. um, particularly in terms of operational capability or operational... Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, it's, it's in terms of... There's, I think one of the biggest challenges as a society that we have in the medical space, I think, is that tra in a military context, is that transition period. Mm. So, as I said in my talk, when you, we've done a lot of really good stuff in mental health in, um, in, the, in the ADF while people are serving. And there's a lot of good stuff happening in the veterans affairs space as well. But you just have to look at the suicide rates. While you're serving full time, the suicide rate is 51% lower than the general population, which is significant, really, obviously very significant. And even the reserve population, it's 47% um, or thereabouts lower. But once you get out, it's higher. And particularly if you're a young man between or under 30, under 28, 30, it's about 200% higher. So there's something going on in the transition process, and there's a, and it's some of it is um, health, some of it is psychosocial, cultural elements wrapped around that, but I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we have, and also the challenge though of helping people when they transition, but not affecting operational capability, you know, while they're serving, yeah. if you if you know what I mean, because. There's a big focus on transition out there, and it's very important. But some of the proponents are saying, well, you should be preparing people for transition when they first come in the door. But you're also preparing them to go to war and doing their job to defend Australia's national interests. So how do you get that balance right between giving them the skills, the life skills they'll need when they finish, but also ensuring that they've got those high-end skills while they're serving? Health plays a role in that, but it's a bigger, broader um, social issue around that as well. In terms of operational capability, I think the challenges there are making sure we keep up with the cutting edge of technology. Um, you know, technology is racing ahead, making sure we harness that. Everything from, you know, virtual reality, remote operating or drones delivering medical equipment to folks in the field, making sure that we have the systems in place to be able to move and adapt with technology is important. But I think it will, what will always be important in, in the operational cap health capability is making sure we've got people with the right skill sets. And that, yes, that's right. And, and I think our model that used to be just, particularly our high-end specialists, just having them in the reserve is not a sustainable model. We've got, obviously, people who are now fully, uh, you know, on our books as full-time, but working in hospitals, training, and then working in hospitals and then you know, giving us two, three months a year on a full-time service. But we probably need to look at how we can expand that model a bit more mm. and um, how we can embed more um, people, uh, you know, either full-time or reserve, but reserve with more commitment. Mm. So in other words, yes, you're in the reserve, but you'll commit over the next three years that you will do two months at some stage. Mm. And employees then that are flexible with that. And, I think that's something we want to do over the next couple of years is, is go out to a lot of major teaching hospitals and say, right, how can we develop a partnership with you that sees you get good quality people? And I think the colleges too come into this as well, but also having the flexibility to allow those people to deploy when we need them in the defence of Australia. At the moment, the model's a bit one-sided in that um, we, we basically pay for people to get trained, and to deliver services and that we only use for a short period of time each year. 
um, maybe we can go on a 50-50 split with the hospitals. Mm. You know, we can actually, and then we can create more positions for, and get better bang, bang for our buck, if you like. And we start to get the hospitals saying, well, no, actually, this is part of being an Australian hospital. It's part of the contingency we have to have an Australia that's safe and defended in that each hospital has to have a little bit of corporate social responsibility and be prepared to be flexible with their people who occasionally put a uniform on. Yeah. Tracy, thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to speak with, uh, with me about this. Is there anything else you'd like to mention or, or talk about? No, I just, uh, if anybody's listening to it who's interested in an uh, ADF career... <laughs> we'll see, um, see how the Monash lawyers like us recruiting for the <laughs> <laughs> No, well, it's, um, it's, it, it is a good... I mean, I joined when I was a fifth-year medical student and I didn't think I'd be serving this long, um, but I've had some amazing life experiences and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's not for everybody, but... Most people get a lot out of it and different experiences and different things out of it. So I, uh, I can't get my brother, Jamie, to, uh, to join um, because, uh, in fact, he did tell someone it was because I'd been bossing him around for his whole life and he didn't want to go into an organisation that validated that. <laughs> um, but, uh, as I said, I think it is something people can think about in terms of what they get out of it themselves but also what they're doing in terms of the greater good in the community. Um, Air Vice Marshal Smart, thank you very much for, uh, for joining me. Uh, my name's Dr Simon Hendel and this is the Monash Perioperative Medicine Podcast and today we were joined by Air Vice Marshal Tracy Smart, the Surgeon General of the Australian Defence Force. Thanks very much for listening. Mm-hmm.